Welcome to Approach the Bench, where we interview some of the leading jurists in the country about the work of judging and important issues within the judicial system. I'm Kara Bayliss, a features reporter here at Law360, and this month we're talking with Judge Juan Villasenor of the 8th Judicial District of the State of Colorado. About a year into his tenure on the bench, Judge Villasenor hadn't given much thought to a quirk in his state's rules of civil procedure that allows jurors to discuss a case during trial. Then an attorney in a medical malpractice suit filed a motion seeking to bar deliberations before closing arguments. And that sparked a sort of research project for the judge, who learned all about the history of the practice in Colorado and in other states. He then sought to educate other judges about the benefits of allowing jurors to deliberate as a trial progresses and about another Colorado rule that allows jurors to ask questions of witnesses. He wrote in Judicature magazine praising both unusual practices. We asked Judge Villasenor about how they play out in his courtroom and about the lessons learned during his relatively young judicial career. This interview has been edited for length and clarity. So, Judge, you wrote in Judicature magazine about Colorado's unusual rules for jury trials, and you said that you always allow for pre-deliberation discussions among jurors. Can you speak a little bit about what that process is like? Basically, the process is that in civil cases, in my court, the Court of General Jurisdiction, the district court, the jurors are allowed to discuss the evidence that they hear within certain parameters. They, you, we instruct them, I certainly do, that they can do that in the deliberation room only when they're all together. We also tell them explicitly that they cannot reach any conclusions, you know, while they discuss the evidence. I don't specifically carve time out for them to do that, but the time is carved naturally by the trial process, right? Uh, every time there's a break, the jurors have that opportunity to talk about, hopefully, what they've been hearing and listening to as the trial is progressing. It sounds like under the rules, it's an option for judges. It's not something that judges have to do. So why did you want to do it? In Colorado, the presumption is that you should allow it. And so I do, even though I, I've allowed it in all the civil jury trials that I've had, I do give the lawyers an opportunity to uh, object. I've had one objection of all the civil trials that I've had. It was a medical malpractice trial. And frankly, I owe it to that, uh, those attorneys, it was the plaintiff's attorneys who objected because that uh, inspired my whole thesis, frankly, because I thought it was very interesting and fascinating. But you, you can object. You don't have to allow it. It seems to be designed the rule for longer trials than shorter, I think. Uh, certainly medical malpractice, construction defect, state securities, you know, something complex like that, where you're going to have expert witnesses talking about technical science, difficult concepts. And so the, the thinking, and I, I think it bears out based on my interviews of jurors after trials, is that, hey, let them talk about what they just heard so that they can hopefully clear up any misunderstanding they might have had about the evidence. They uh, can then better process it in Maybe, not necessary, but they can all be on the same page, right? Or if they're going to disagree, they can at least be speaking from the same premises, 
that's the that's the thinking behind it. And the jurors I interview love it. I mean, because they they're discussing what they've heard and they're processing it. How did you rule on that objection in that medical malpractice case? I overruled it, uh, but it, it certainly made me think about the practice. I knew it was in the rules. Uh, being a new judge, uh, I didn't realize this. This is what we did in Colorado. You know, I practiced mostly in federal court before that, but it kind of sent me looking at uh, cases. I couldn't find any really. And so I ended up uh, looking at uh, law review articles, which was frankly the only source of any information about what happened. I, and I overruled the objection and allowed the, uh, the jurors to discuss the evidence. You wrote that jurors can engage in deliberations in civil cases. So I assume it's not allowed in criminal cases. Is that right? That is correct. There's only one state to my, in my research that allows the practice in all, uh, all types of cases. That's Indiana. Here, you know, this all started in the mid 1990s after Arizona had initiated this whole jury reform. Uh, we started in 1997, 1998, and the pilot project only dealt with uh, civil cases in district court. And I don't think there has ever been any discussion of extending it to criminal cases. Why do you think that is? What's the distinction there between criminal and civil? I'd be speculating. My sense is that folks might be really afraid that the jurors will not abide by the instructions, right, of the court in a criminal case. I think that was something that made many attorneys back 25 years ago, very hesitant to allow it in civil cases. You know, the the Colorado Supreme Court issued a report in, in early 1998 that talked about, it's like, well, you know, jurors are talking about the evidence anyway, we surmise. It's human nature. You're boxing people in, in a very, you know, artificial environment and then you tell them, you can't talk about anything related to the case. Well, it's unrealistic. People are kind of going to do it anyway. So why don't we give them parameters to do it in, right? And that's what happened in civil cases. I think I would certainly uh, be more cautious in criminal cases to ensure that there's no discussions about final outcomes, which can be very, very significant. Colorado also allows jurors to ask questions of witnesses during trial. So how does that work? And can you think of an example of a really good question that a juror asked that clarified an issue? The way it works, uh, we give them a sheet of paper with a case caption. And then I tell them, okay, you know, you can ask questions of a witness who's testifying live here. So as you think of the question, if the evidence triggers something in you, write it down, save it. We go through direct, cross-exam, redirect, and then I will turn to the jurors and say, do you folks have any questions? And so if they do, they'll raise their hands and then they'll pass the questions to the bailiff who then will give them to me. The instruction that I give them and the law is that their, their questions are subject to the same rules of evidence than any other questions that may be asked you know, by, by the lawyer, certainly. I have a bench conference with the attorneys, basically. Give them the questions, they get to object or not object. Uh, you know, I, I would say there's anecdotal, but 95% of the time, the attorneys do not object. They just allow the questions to be asked. Sometimes they're very clearly objectionable. They're asking like legal questions, 
or they're asking questions of me, <laughs> which is kind of funny. <laughs> it's like, no, I can't answer that question. Um, so th they'll do things like that, but I have discretion, which makes sense uh, because sometimes the questions are kind of phrased a little wonky. Uh, and so I have discretion to kind of modify it, you know, just maybe ease of grammar or ease of, you know, understanding. I try to make it very, very, you know, minimum so that I don't alter the substance of the question. I ask the question, the witness answers. I might do a follow-up, you know, if it makes sense. And then what happens, I allow the attorneys to do additional examination within the scope of that question. Uh, jurors really like it because it keeps them engaged, right? You know, if they're part of the process, and they should be because they are the judges of the facts, that's what I tell them. One of the ways you can do uh, help you in doing that is, hey, write a question, figure it out. Right. Um, in terms of is there a really good question? I can't think of any, but you know, in general, what will happen is especially of an expert or maybe a police officer in a criminal case, they get questions about the police officers. It's interesting because now everybody where the police officers wear body cam. So everything is being caught on that body cam. And so they will ask questions about, hey, why didn't you turn the sound on during this portion? Those are very good because I think it um, it helps, I feel, for transparency for law enforcement. And then, you know, law enforcement can explain, well, we have this policy. This policy is this. We turn that off during this time and we turn that on when this happens. In civil cases, again, you, maybe you have a, a physician, right, and that you know, medical malpractice. You have an expert witness or maybe you have the the alleged negligent physician, right? You want to ask them, you know, well, what is it that you, you know, why didn't you order this? What made you do this other procedure? Sometimes, you know, I will get a, I just get a sheet of paper. Sometimes I will have five questions per juror with subparts and everything. It's like, wow, okay, this is, you know, somebody's really paying attention. It's great. It's great. I love it. And usually you can tell, uh, you know, whether not so much by, certainly by the substance of the questions, but by how many they're asking of a particular witness, right? The key expert on the plaintiff side may get a lot of questions, while maybe the counterpart on the defense may not. That could be a sign, right? That maybe they're, they're not, they might have questions about the plaintiff's case and not so much the defense. I don't know. It's a guess, right? Or, you know, they're asking a lot of questions of the police officer, you know, especially the tone of them. It could be a sign that they may have an issue, right? Um, and so, you know, I just stay out of it and don't really have a view one way or the other. It's really more for the attorneys to figure out what to do with the questions. Right. I was going to say that must be so interesting for an attorney because usually the jurors are just kind of a blank wall. You kind of get some insight into how they're feeling. Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, you know, sometimes you have very active jurors asking a lot of questions. And sometimes, you know, what, what ends up happening is you have a lot of questions and then you don't. And so then you're like, okay, you, something's happened, right? Like maybe they've heard enough. They feel they have a good handle on things. And that's also a, a you know, a clue for the attorneys that, hey, move it along because you don't want them bored, right? So it's, it's a lot to keep in mind, but I think it makes for more engaging and sort of interested decision makers, which I think is what we want. Yeah, absolutely. You've been on the bench for, for a couple of years now. Can you speak 
a bit about the challenges that you faced when you first became a judge and how you overcame them? And what advice would you give for judges new to the job? The first is, and this one kind of hits you like a ton of bricks. I don't think anybody's really used to this, is the staggering volume of cases that come your way. Immediately, you're going to have hundreds of cases assigned to you, whether you're in federal or state court, doesn't matter. And so, uh, you know, I've heard it described by other judges, you're drinking out of a, from the water hose. It's true. <laughs> That's what it feels like. But it's all coming your way from all different directions. Cases are going to be at different stages. You're going to have to address them. Setting trials, you know, keeping track of speedy trial deadlines. It's all, I mean, it's all that, and that's the court's responsibility, right? So all that uh, is certainly uh, very challenging. It gets better in time. You just kind of get used to the, the madness, if you will, right? You, you get used to that flow, that overwhelming flow. You're like, okay, I get it, you know, and then you just kind of have to roll with it literally and just kind of keep going. But what's really difficult is, especially in a trial court setting, hearing in the in criminal cases in particular from victims, you know, from victims' families, from defendants, from the defendants' family too, because they're affected also by, by crime. And it's interesting, even in sentencing hearings that are stipulated, I, and I have quite a few of those, uh, it's very emotionally taxing because you, you know, to keep decorum in order, you tell everybody, hey, if you're going to speak, that's great but address your remarks to me. You know, you can yell and scream at me if you want, but don't do it at the defendant. So emotionally speaking, this is all being directed to you, right? And so a piece of advice for new judges is certainly learn about secondary trauma, uh, learn about PTSD. Your brain does not distinguish between a real event and a made-up event. If it's, if it finds trauma, if it finds it traumatic. And so for me, it's, it's really important that you do keep some outside activities. You shouldn't just be <laughs> writing orders, being in hearings and then going home and, you know, going to bed or whatever, you know, exercise, I think is very important. Find hobbies outside the, the, your job because you do need to decompress. Uh, there are a lot of pressures. Um, and it is, I found, impossible to uh, please everybody. It's just not the nature of the job. Unless you're doing an adoption, I suppose, <laughs> or marriage, right? Then it's great. Um, or in federal court, a naturalization ceremony. And everybody's happy. But aside from that, you know, it, uh, it's, it's sort of a, you know, somebody wins, somebody loses. And it's just very difficult, you know, because some of these decisions are very difficult to make. Uh, you know, you're, you're really affecting people's lives. And so, you know, that takes a toll. So it's really important that you take care of your own mind and emotions too. Is it hard to find the time to do that though? I mean, you described your caseload as a fire hose. Yeah. Well, now, now it feels like a, you know, garden hose because I'm used to it, right? <laughs> it's all about perspective. Right. You're a state court judge now. Before that, you were a federal prosecutor those experiences seem so different, but how do you think your experience as an attorney has informed your work as a judge? As an AUSA, you have an assistant U.S. attorney. I was at work there in Denver for about 10 years, nearly 10 years. Uh, you you have an enormous responsibility in the cases that you are assigned to, in, to represent the interests of the United States. 
I'm very proud of that work that I did, you know, in particular for me personally, because I'm an immigrant, I'm from Mexico, I'm a naturalized citizen. So it was always a distinct pleasure for me to get up in court, whether I was in state court and federal court and say, say my name on behalf of the United States doing that uh, makes you incredibly proud, especially as an immigrant. The experience that you bring with that, so I was in the civil division of the U.S. Attorney's Office. And so, but you're a litigator, right? Uh, through and through. So I know uh, what the, what it allows you to learn is how the process works, right? So you are able to understand when an attorney is telling you, hey, we need more time for this, or this is happening in the case, or mediation, or delays, or whatever happens, certainly in a civil case. You know, I understand that because I've been there. You know, I, I had to look for experts. Uh, I had to retain experts just like all the folks that I see here day in and day out do. And I understand the logistical problems. So it gives you that perspective, right? Because you've been there. You're like, yeah, I know. You know, I'm having trouble finding one, maybe because my kids is not that good. So maybe we need to settle it. You know, that sort of thing. You also, you know, because you have so much responsibility, I think it certainly gave me a respect for the immense power the prosecutors have. Uh, you know, because I prosecuted cases and, and boy, you know, the power that I had to investigate the case is huge. And so you do, I learned a, to have a healthy perspective on that power and to, you know, also how crimes affect the defendant and victims and, you know, everybody else who's involved in the criminal justice system. So now that you're on the bench, on the other side of things, are there any missteps or mistakes that attorneys make in briefs or in the courtroom that get on your nerves? I was surprised at how often I, in some briefs, let's just say in, in, in you know, response to a motion, motion, uh, lawyers don't address uh, glaring weaknesses in their argument. You know, you're reading the motion or whatever, you know, and then you see a hole, you know, like, wait a minute. Or maybe you see the response, right? And they cite a case that the other side didn't cite. And you're like, wait a minute, that that's pretty bad for you. And now they have a reply. They, they never address it. I see that more often than I should. And so that that's one thing that, you know, uh, that would be very beneficial. Another thing that I, that I found very jarring is personal attacks by the lawyers against each other in the written briefs. It won't happen in the courtroom, right? I mean, I think they tried to keep it polite, but in, in it's like in the written briefs, it's like nobody's watching or I don't know what happens, but they'll start attacking each other. And it's, it's not like I'm like, oh God, here we go again. It's very distracting, really. It's, it, it just takes away from the argument. Uh, you know, if you throw in, throw that little elbow, you're like, oh, okay. It's like, okay, well, and then it makes you wonder, it's like, well, what's happening you know, I'm not offended by it or anything like that. I'm, I don't get angry, but it, it's just very, that's the word distracting. And so don't distract the decision maker with something that is extraneous to what I need to decide on. This might be closer to a pet peeve. Um, I think attorneys continue to use very antiquated, mouthful and awkward formulations, lawyerisms in their pleadings. What are some examples of those? You know, the infamous comes now, defendant, by and through, counsel, comma, XYZ, you know, LLC, comma, and respectfully moves this honorable court to blank. It's like, oh my gosh, I just, you know, it's like, I don't, I just lost track of what you want. <laughs> you know, something 
as clean as defendant moves to dismiss plaintiff's complaint or claims because they are not plausible. Federal Rules of Procedure 12B6, period. I mean, I know who you are. You know, you signed the pleading, you signed the motion with your law firm heading and everything. So I know who's filing it. If they're page limits, you're using lines <laughs> that you could just use to move your argument. In terms of argument in, in front of the court or oral statements, one thing that's very, again, I'm surprised that it's so common is that attorneys will not answer the direct question that's posed of them, right? It seems that invariably is because the answer is going to be bad for them, which is fine. You know, it is what it is. But, you know, I did a lot of appellate advocacy in my earlier days in my career. And the tried and true method is I read in books. I read, you know, CLEs. It was like, just answer it. Yes, no, and then pivot. You know, is this case bad for you? Yes, it is. But, you know, here's why it doesn't doom the case. Your credibility will go up with the court because you're like, okay, well, at least I got a straight answer from you about this case. You agree that it's not good for you. Perfect. And maybe uh, now I'm now going to buy your explanation as to why you, uh, you still win. But answer it, right? Um, because if you don't, the judge is just going to ask it again. And the last one is not following a judge's procedures or practices. You know, judges have these procedures or ways of doing things, not to make it tedious for the attorneys, not to make it their job difficult. But um, think of think of it this way: this is how the decision maker thinks about the issues that are being presented to him or her. The, the procedures for how to deal with the, you know, Daubert motion, the procedures to how to present a summary judgment or motion to dismiss are there for a reason. It is how that decision maker understands information at a very basic level, really. And so if you present that information, it might take a little more work because maybe you're not used to it. But if you present that information in a way that that a judicial officer understands it best, then it's going to make everything more seamless, right? You might still not prevail, but at least you will make yourself understood. You will convey the points that you're trying to convey uh, and make it easier for the decision maker to make a decision especially if you're going to win. I mean, you want to do that, you know. <laughs> if you think you're going to win, just, you know, lay it all out the way the judge understands it best, and then you're off to the races. So anyway, yeah, those things, I think, um, I, are, are, are things that are not necessarily pet peeves, but I do see and that I, I don't think really help the attorneys move the ball forward, you know, in their cases. I love asking that question because judges always have multiple answers. I feel like you came, you were, you had a list. (laughs) I do. do. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's, and I don't, I don't want to sound like I'm complaining and it's not, I'd really want to give answers that are helpful to the attorneys, right. To like, okay, this is why we do this. And hopefully that maybe that helps um, because I want to make the best decision that I can based on the available information that's presented to me. And so if 
you don't present the information in a way that I kind of uh, I like to see it. Um, it, it's really beyond a petty preference. It's, it's not that. It's really how I understand it, you know, the information. It makes everyone's job easier. Yeah, yeah. Judge, thank you so much for speaking with us. We really appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for inviting me. It's been a real pleasure. It's been a real treat. We'd like to thank our guest, Judge Juan Villasenor. Our episode was produced by Stephen Trader. Our executive producer is Amber McKinney. Music for the show comes from Law360's own Kelly Marcano. Thank you for listening. <laughs>